Hello and welcome to a February edition of the Geek Roulette Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Spriegel. I'm the other host, John Lundquist. Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, hope you're all doing well. I think we're doing yeah. well, and if we're not doing well and don't know it, it's our own ignorance that'll be our undoing. Yeah, you never know what's going on beneath the surface that you're just not aware of. There are those people you meet that are, like, oblivious to, like, their own status in life. But that's just it. Are they, though? I mean, you ever meet somebody whose life is, life is clearly a wreck of some sorts? Like, there's a lot of things, but they seem nonetheless happy about it. I have one or two things in that situation. Situation one is this, is that they know that their life is kind of a wreck, and they just repress it and bury it deep down inside. Or... The alternative is, is they are not aware their life is a wreck, and maybe that's why they're happy, because they don't know how screwed they are. Yeah, I think most people are, like, probably in the first category, but I do think there's a fairly healthy amount that's in that second category that are just blissfully unaware, and they're just like, oh, everybody's life is full of this much chaos and drama. This is just the way life is, not realizing that, no, yes, there is some life drama in people's lives, but not like what you've got going on. You know, I, I had a conversation with a coworker about this a few weeks back about how, like, ignorant people are always that, well, usually the happier people, like, just the, the ones that are just really oblivious and you see how happy they are. And part of it is, is, man, I wish I had that level of stupidity. <laughs> then I would be happy too. Yeah, but, but would you really, though? Would you really? I would know that I wasn't happy. So, therefore, yes. I mean, yeah. Uh... I suppose that is where the ignorance is bliss comes into play. So, right. You know, we're getting a little too uh, meta right now. Hey, guess what? This episode, we're going to talk about the Ghostbusters franchise. Uh, we're going to discuss its humble origins and how it's evolved over the past, God, man, 40 years, basically. This is like the 40th anniversary time. of Ghost, uh, Ghostbusters. It is 1984. That bad boy came out. Yeah, it is one. I, I remember that movie, how it kind of scared me in the beginning because the librarian kind of gave me like an issue about wandering libraries alone. And, but then like a few <laughs> years later, it didn't help that like I would eventually read Stephen King's It and of course Pennywise would leave balloons floating around in libraries. Yeah, that'll get you. But hey, we're not there yet. So uh, first, just basic housekeeping. Guess what? We're still a thing. Give us some ratings. Uh, give us maybe, you know, if it's like out of five stars, I'd settle for three. Yeah. I mean, we're not picky, you know, we're not needy. We're not going to be one of those podcasts where we're like, Hey, give us five stars or you can just piss off it. No, we're, we're okay with three. We're good. You know, just, you know, be honest, unless it's two or one, then screw you. Yeah. It's your problem. You have garbage taste, your problem. Uh, then follow us on social media. If you deem us worthy of doing so, Hey, we did it. We got through the housekeeping. Guess what? Next up, we have two different segments we do. Our first is our arbitrary list and then recommendations or sometimes vice versa. Let's do recommendations first, John. What is it that you want to recommend? I have been playing a game lately on the good old Nintendo Switch. I believe it is available on other platforms as well, but uh, do your own research because I'm too lazy to. I'm not sure where else it is. It's probably on Steam because Steam has everything. Um, that game is called Tunic. Um I played it. I don't want to give 
Have you? Yeah, it's on Xbox 360, John, because it's on other platforms. It's on Xbox. It's uh, on Xbox 360 there, people. Not Xbox 360. Sorry, Xbox Game Pass. There you go. It's on there. So it's all over the place. Go play it. Um, It's kind of, it's going to give you a Zelda vibe probably right off the bat because your main character is a fox wearing a green tunic. Um, you eventually go get a sword and you go do stuff from it, but calling it that is really not doing the game justice because there's a whole lot to it. I don't want to spoil too much, but, um, basically one of the things you do, and this isn't too much of a spoiler, but you find the first one right away is you find the pages to the instruction book. So of the game that you are playing. So, um, you kind of slowly piece together the book. It gives you kind of some clues onto what you're supposed to do. Uh, you might be playing for several hours and then find out, Hey, this whole time I could have been doing this thing. Um, with the game and it's just kind of puts it on its head as you figure out a where you have to go in the game and what you have to do and also b your abilities and all that fun stuff um i am almost done with it i'm on the last boss um and i believe there's other but there's a whole ton of other stuff that you can do there's puzzles just galore in it it's one of those games you could spend just an insane amount of time on i don't know that i will this first time play through it at least um but it's a heck of a lot of fun if you enjoy games that are challenging but fun um, then you should definitely give Tunic a shot. It's also not that expensive for, you know, being an in-depth game as it is. I thought it was going to be a lot shorter than it was. It's I think it's only like 20 bucks or so, maybe $30. Um, and it's apparently on Game Pass, too, if you have Xbox 360. So Xbox know. 360, John, yeah. no. Or Xbox, Xbox One, whatever the heck, Xbone, you know. Um, so, yes. And I'm going to just say this, being on the Xbox Game Pass, such a great service. That's why I was able to play it. It gives you a chance to play indie-style games like that. So that's not my recommendation. Uh, My recommendation is another game that actually just finally got released to Xbox just probably about a month or so ago. That is Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, It's good old D&D, basically. It's, hey, what if you basically took, like, I don't know, the Dragon Age series and you know, turned it into turn-based stuff, and then, hey, let's have it, you know, where it's just all these references, the things from the D&D universe. It is interesting because it does play in a turn-based set. You actually have dice you roll at various points of the game, much like you do in D&D, and it's got a definitely a... It's one of those games, like, I can see how it can drive people with OCD crazy just because, as an example here, there's a lot of right and wrong ways to play the game, and there's people I hear that do nothing but nonstop saves basically during the game to, you know, just because, oh, man, I didn't want that result. If you don't care about that and just play it as it comes, just as cool. But if you're an OCD nerd, hey, that works out for you, too. So Baldur's Gate 3, it's been out for a while. Many uh, Game of the Year awards from various outlets. But now uh, it's on uh, Xbox, and that's all that matters because who cares about Steam, John? Boo, Steam. All right, next up, we're going to do our arbitrary list. Our arbitrary list was kind of inspired by the Ghostbusters being out in the 80s. It is, what are our top three favorite movies from the 80s? John has told me that he has done minimal homework for this, so I assume that I will know at least one of his answers and choices but the other ones, I'm sure, are going to be all over, and he's going to be full of regret as time goes on, essentially, where then he realizes, oh, why didn't I take that movie? So let's make John awkward and put him on the spot. John, what's one of your movies? John, your mute is on. 
That's what I get for trying to cough. Anyway, I'm going to go and get the obvious one out of the way. Um, and I'm actually going to lump the two of them because technically two no, of them No, 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 no. You can't oh, lump yes. movies. No, it's disqualified. John, you're disqualified. Son of a bitch. I hate when that happens. All right, then I will just go with the initial one that I thought of because I thought the other one came out in 1979, but apparently it came out in 1980. I'm going to go with Return of the Jedi. That was 83, John. Oh, yeah. That was, yes, but Empire Strikes Back apparently came out in 1980, which, yes. I, like I said, I thought came out in 79, but, you know, goes to show what I know. Nothing. Um, Yes, clearly. I'm not going to get too in-depth because we have talked about Star Wars quite a bit here. Return of the Jedi, awesome. Jabba, good stuff. Luke in the black suit. Vader, good times. Yes. Return of the Jedi is made better by the fact that it is, A, not the prequels. I think back then it used to be the black sheep of the Star Wars family until the prequels came out. But, John, I, I have Empire Strikes Back as one because it did come out in 1980. Uh, Wikipedia is your did. friend. And that was the first movie I ever saw in the theater. And that right there, that was a great movie just because of not just – how about this? It was a movie that Lucas didn't direct. That's one of the bigger things right there. Yeah. It, yeah. ironically enough, you know, when you let somebody else that's better at storytelling do a movie, you're going to get better, like, store, you know, overall arcs and character interactions. And I think that's what really drives that movie is the character interactions. Uh, Return of the Jedi would not make my top 50 list, John. Well, that's just a shame for you. Who was the, uh, speaking of directing in Star Wars movies, who was it, I forget, that was supposed to... At one point, was going to direct Jedi. I want to say Fincher, but it wasn't Fincher, was it? No. It was some big, prolific director. I'll have to look it up maybe when you're talking later, and I'll I'll get back to it. There was some director that was originally slated to do Return of the Jedi, but it wasn't... Was it Marquand that ended up doing it, actually? Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. I forget, but yes. Somebody, somebody whose name everybody here would know was supposed to direct it, but then things happened and he didn't. But Return of the anyway. Jedi really has a nonsensical plot when you think about it. I mean, the beginning part, yeah, that plot, the, the whole Jabba plot is kind of convoluted. Not even and that, I'm but sure, the Emperor's you know. plot of like, ah, yes, I will let them have the plans and then endanger myself unnecessarily so that way I can do stuff. Yeah, but I mean, that kind of fits in with the... Oh, it was David Lynch. It was Lynch that was supposed to do Return of the Jedi originally. Um, that kind of fits in with his arrogance, though. Like he's like, I'm going to do all this crazy stuff, and they're going to, you know, like it, that. That's kind of his thing. He was more of a schemer than I mean. He had power certainly, but like, but he, he was, was definitely also, like a, he was always about the long con. He was waiting, willing to wait, and I feel that he kind of rushed into it right there, where he just got impatient, and that was maybe just his overall undoing. I think his undoing was not having much defense at all down on the damn forest end of our moon. I mean, blowing up that silly bunker can, you know, screw everything up. Then wouldn't you put a hell of a lot more than what he had down there defending it? I mean, again, he, he walks aside. If if the rebels had set a decent-sized force there, then, you know, I don't know. It what just are you going to do? Nonsensical planning. All right. Well, uh, John, name another one of yours. I'm going to go, and this is where, you know, maybe the, the laziness comes in, but it's one I quite like quite a bit. And if I were to, you know, actually go through and research quite a few 80s movies, I might I would possibly find one I like more than this one. But this is still one I like quite a bit um, and probably the dark horse of both our lists. I'm going to go with the Blues Brothers. Um, 
because it's damn funny. It's uh, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, driving around, beat, blowing the hell out of Chicago. Um, awesome music with, you know, Aretha Franklin, Cab Calloway, all sorts of people. It's just, it's crazy. It's funny. Um, I haven't seen it in a while, but it's it's good stuff. It is, you know, I don't know what to say about it. It's, you know, there's a lot of 80, early 80s callbacks with, you know, you get like Twiggies in there and I forget who else. It's, it's. It's good stuff. I like. So I'll segue because Empire is my number one pick. I'm going to go to my number three pick because my number three pick changed about 20 times. I think the hard part about my number three pick is that it really depends on my mood. Because Blues Brothers, it's in the rut was in the running there for it. I sat there and I thought about, well, all right, but you also have like Raiders of Lost Ark. Oh, man, I love that movie. And like, oh, I love Major League. Oh, man, I like the Three Amigos. That one's also pretty good, too. And I kept like just going all over the place because really there was a lot of movies that are all grouped together. And ultimately, I think where I landed for my number three is I sat there and thought, what is a well-rounded movie, memorable cast, what is very solid and I think what was also iconic where it's kind of held up a lot over time, even though, you know, it probably has been in the spotlight for a while. I landed on Back to the Future. I felt that that was a movie right there where that basically made Michael J. Fox, you know, the star that he was. <clears throat> it's an amazing movie when you factor in that they filmed the majority of the movie with Eric Stoltz until they realized that he's just not funny and basically refilm the whole movie. You have Crispin Glover's mostly just amazingly bizarre George McFly performance, which is just captivating. Biff is one of the most perfect bully villains you're ever going to find. Doc Brown just, again, perfectly cast, you know. And I looked through the whole you know thing out of all the movies there, and like if I were to watch all those movies, which one do I kind of have the warmest amount of memories to? And Blues Brothers was probably, I would say, top 10 at least for sure. But I land on Back to the Future. Yeah, that is a darn good one. That, that's hard to argue, you know. And then they made number two. Number three was good, but yeah, two, yeah. Right. So, Not so much. John, what was your last one? My last one is probably pretty genuine, would be on my... Definitely top five, probably because it's it's damn good. Um, and I'm just gonna say it's it's Princess Bride because I don't I don't even really need to talk it up. If you haven't seen Princess Bride, like there's something more wrong with you than there is with me for not having seen most of the movies and TV shows that I have seen. It's a classic movie, just like in anybody. You know, it could be on and probably is on most people's like top three or top five list of movies. Just period. It's funny. It's creative. It's just everything, you know, it gets the nostalgia for a lot of people, which, you know, I'm definitely one of. Um, you know, the cast is amazing. You know, Andre the Giant, it's, it, you know, just everybody. I, I, I don't feel I need to talk it up too much because, you know, everybody here has probably seen Princess Bride quite a few times. If you haven't, then, well, I can't help you. That was my number two, was The Princess Bride. I feel that it is probably one of the most perfectly cast 80s movies that's warm, imaginative, multiple layers when you consider it's a story within a story. Uh, you have probably just so many different iconic characters in there. Even like the ones that like, you know, aren't there for a while leave their impact. Like when you think about, you know, Sean Wallace's visit and everything, you think, hey, 
he's only in like maybe a third of the movie, but even his one third in the movie was just an amazing, like, you know, just overall perfectly acted moment of just an arrogant, arrogant man itself, you know, and Mandy Panikin is a Nico Montoya, Christopher Guest. I mean, just all in all, just a great overall movie itself, highly quotable, highly watchable. So that was my number two. Yes. Damn good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. Moving into our main topic. So Ghostbusters, it's 40 years. So this year with that being the case, Figure, you know what? Let's talk about Ghostbusters. There's a new movie coming out later this year, and trailer has been kind of out and about for it. Before you really get to that, you got to have to talk about the original Ghostbusters, and I think just the quirky impact that it had just overall on just think filmmaking in general. I would it be safe to say that Ghostbusters was probably Bill Murray's like breakthrough movie where it was probably his biggest role that catapulted him into a lot more stardom i mean that's probably debatable i would think but i mean i don't think you're wrong to say that i mean before that he definitely had some some parts that he's well known for but i think i think you're right i think this is probably the one that launched him into like the the mainstream you know where his previous movies caddyshack and you know stripes and some of his other ones were you know were more he was definitely known for them, but they were definitely more on a low breath. Lowbrow is quite the right word for it, but they weren't weren't to the level of Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters was a huge, massive hit. You know, Bill Murray was in it. He was, you know, arguably the main character, at least you know one of the main characters. Now, um, the ironic thing is that he was he was probably the most high profile character in there just because of his presence. But Bill Murray was not originally cast in the movie itself. Uh, originally, Bill Murray's role was supposed to be for uh, Belushi, uh, that Dan Aykroyd, when he wrote the script for the movie, he wrote it for uh, Jim Belushi. And ultimately, uh, he kind of just, you know, unfortunately, during the writing process of the movie, that's when Belushi passed away. So when he passed away, that's when he kind of, you know, went to Bill Murray as his pivot, basically, just knowing him from his SNL days, knowing he had the comedic chops pull it off. Another interesting fact is that Ernie Hudson's Winston Zedmore originally was supposed to be done by Eddie uh, Eddie Murray and Eddie Murphy, and same sort of thing there. Eddie Murphy, his career kind of took up took off along the, around that time as well too, and because of that, he I wouldn't say he outgrew the role, but he had other things that were going to be much more of a probably a star, you know, you know, starring roles type of thing where. I would say this, I wouldn't say it's an ensemble movie, but it definitely has where there's just multiple characters that work together to kind of make it work. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the casting this is pretty solid. Like, I don't know that I think if you did put Eddie Murphy in there, I almost think I prefer Ernie Hudson. I mean, Ernie Hudson did a great job. I think I could see if you put Eddie Murphy in there. I think I could almost see him trying to steal the show because, like you said, he was definitely kind of the bigger star, biggest star probably out of those people. And I think it would have made for different chemistry with the movie. I think Ernie Hudson did a great job with it. Well, Ernie Hudson um, said that, you know, just in interviews over the past decade or two, that originally the script for Hudson was a lot larger because it was written for Eddie Murphy. But then eventually, like, you know, once he was cast, they kind of really scaled down his role a lot more versus what it was for Murphy. And he says he's not bitter about it. He's just happy with have been in the movie itself. But it was just... He felt it wasn't what he was sold on when he eventually joined up with the movie. 
Yeah, and I mean, along with him, I mean, even the rest of the cast. I mean, you've got, you know, Rick Moranis was great in it, Sigourney Weaver, you know, even the bit parts like uh, whatever, is, I forget the actor's name who played him, but the guy, the, the, the government crony. Um, William Atherton's you know. Walter Peck. Oh, I got a lot of things to say about Walter Peck later on. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, for those... I mean, I would say this with this movie, for those that haven't seen the premise kind of just the breakdown is that there's a building and it turns out that this long dead, like ghost, you know, God spirit demon. I can't remember what the thing. Yeah. Well, it is goes the Gozerian and essentially it's using the building to kind of reopen the ways to let ghosts back in the world. And it, essentially there's these individuals that do independent research and then from there they decide oh you know what maybe we can find a way to like find ghosts because they hear about like a incident in a library and then it all spirals from there few things interesting about just the movie now 80s movies definitely required a lot of suspension of disbelief so do you remember how they financed the ghostbusters I don't, but weren't most of the, with the exception of Ernie Hudson, uh, Ernie Hudson's character, weren't they all like somewhat just rich on their own of some sort? Or I forget exactly. No, they sold Dan Aykroyd's mother's house in the movie, and then that's how they financed that. Which is great when you consider that by apparently selling a house, it gives you the financial means to buy nuclear based like technology and do all of that. That's just that's just crapping on just a weird way of just trying to explain the how. It was one of those things that kind of got flimsy right there. Uh, it was the 80s, baby. It was the 80s. <laughs> real, estate, real estate in the 80s. Real estate in the 80s. Like, maybe it was like in, uh, you know, actual New York City. That makes sense right there. But, yeah, it's an interesting premise. They decide to use this experimental technology and eventually catch ghosts gain fame and notoriety until they discover that one of their early clients actually is part of something bigger. And then they get possessed and Rick Moranis gets possessed and it's implied they have sex, right? Yeah, pretty much. I don't, yeah, I don't think they were flat out say it, but it, it's very, you know, n- they're not subtle about it. No, no, but I mean, all in all, a very highly quotable movie. They actually let Bill Murray, I think, write most of his lines, which makes sense because Bill Murray at this point only did the movie based on a handshake agreement because that's how Bill Murray's done business for the past 40 years is that he'll say he does a movie and then he just shows up and hopefully he shows up and he did. Uh, Aykroyd, he wrote the movie. Uh, Ramis, you know, he was... Well familiar with a lot of these characters just because of, you know, working with it before. Reitman was the director for this. And Reitman, this would probably be one of, I don't know if I would say it would be one of his, this isn't his breakout. Reitman's breakout movie was Animal House. I think that's a very easy way to say it right there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this, I think, you know, definitely led more credence to his star power from that. But he was, yeah, he was definitely... You know, already kind of a you know, a made man, so to speak. He he could pretty much, pretty much do what he wanted for the most part. This this just furthered that. Well, he did stripes, so again, he's familiar with Ramis and Murray. It was a lot of familiarity, I think, in the writing process for this movie. 
Now, John, uh, with this movie, a few things here. Like, the interactions between all of them, all the characters, I think, is what's nice. You definitely, the way it was always described in this movie is that there would be dynamics between the movie. The smart guy, the funny guy, the quirky guy, and everything. And I would say this almost set kind of the trope for that in general right there, where you had these different types of characters that all work together that complement each other. And then you had Ernie Hudson, who was the everyday man. Yeah, pretty much he was the, you know, the I'm just here because I need a job guy. Now, here's some interesting things here. So with the movie, also other casting they had in the movie itself, like Larry King played himself, and you hear Casey Caseman there, and his wife was also in there. Did you know that uh, at Lewis's party, or in the movie as well, I guess, like, Bron Jeremy was in the movie? I had not heard that. I now That's almost feel compelled to rewatch this just to, you know, just basically see what's going on here. But uh, as the movie goes, I think there's just so many memorable moments. Like, their first time trying to catch that ghost in the fancy hotel. Amazing. I, I think it's great that they're just fucking up left and right. Just for the sheer fact alone that, you know, nobody's going to be perfect at this job right off the bat itself. Then after that, it kind of goes into the whole montage mode of, hey, they're successful. And you see their popularity growing until they eventually face, uh, you know, Gozer the Gozerian and the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Before the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, do you know who the actual monster was supposed to be they were going to fight? I don't, if I had to guess. I mean, Stay Puff Marshmallow Man looks kind of like the Michelin Man, so maybe him. I don't know. Apparently, it's supposed to be a monster that would come out of, like, you know, the you know harbor of uh, New York and basically like a giant cthulhu type monster. Like a big kaiju-type thing? Yeah, kind of. But apparently, nice. they had to do it based on practical effects, and they didn't think they could do it. So that's when, they, I guess, you know, eventually they kind of turned it into the state Post Marshmallow Man, so. Hey, it worked. It did. It did. John, something I've discussed and talked about before. So, who's the hero of this movie, John? The hero? Um, I don't know. Hell if I know. Probably. Is it Rick Moranis' character, maybe? No, he gets taken over, really. He doesn't really do a whole lot. No. He turns into a wolf thing. Yeah, or dog. I yeah, don't know. dog, demon thing. John, I would always argue that it's William Atherton's Walter Peck who's the true hero of this movie. Because he was doing his job. His job was, hey, we heard you had an on-site nuclear facility in the heart of downtown New York. I kind of need to look at this because we're concerned about the ramifications of this. And, you know, Venkman's a total dickhole to him, basically, saying no. So because of that, you know, he's got to up his game to try to figure what's going on now. Shutting off the grid itself, maybe that would have been kind of the issue on, like, Peck's part. But he was doing his job. It's just weird, like, you know, like, oh, man, boo, Walter Peck. But that was the 80s where, like, somebody, like, was trying to do their job. Like the principal from Ferris Bueller, you know, Rooney as an example. Like, boo, leave Ferris alone. Why? Ferris hacked into the computer system as being intentionally truant. He's kind of the villain. Yeah. You're not wrong. There's a lot of that in 80s movies. Yeah, there is. 
lot of uh, all the games at every at every college. Another weird thing too is that so in the movie, Venkman goes over to Dana's apartment, but by that point, Dana's been like possessed by what was she? She was the she was the gatekeeper, right? She was the, yeah, she, she was the gatekeeper, and and she was looking for the key. Another sexual innuendo there for right. for all of you keeping track. So eventually, like you know. Murray subdues her, calls others, and he states, I gave her a bunch of medication to, like, put her out. Which then leads to believe, if he went there on the pretense of a date, why was he bringing a bunch of, like, roofies, basically, to a date? That's how he rolls. 80s, folks. 80s. Yep. A lot of, uh, a lot of lawsuits involved with this movie. Like, in real life or in, or in the plot? Uh, in real life, actually. So lawsuit number one, or one that was a big legal matter, was the fact that they had to get the legal rights to the Ghostbusters name to use in the movie because it was part of a live-action uh, show back in the 70s or so, which eventually became an animated cartoon in the 80s. Do you remember like the the Ghostbusters cartoon by Filmation? Yeah, the one with the... Gorilla and the car yep. with the little ghost on the front of it, or something. Yep. So that would yeah. that actually came before Ghostbusters. So they had to come to a weird legal agreement, which I guess eventually Ghostbusters came out way ahead because they had all these weird triggers in there, and I guess it caused some sour feelings. It's also why, like when the Ghostbusters from the movie had their own cartoon, it was the real Ghostbusters because mm-hmm. they couldn't just call it Ghostbusters because of the fact of the legal things going on. And to differentiate themselves, but that technically they're both real. It was a weird kind of situation right there. Also, uh, Ray Parker Jr. was sued by Huey Lewis in the news because they said that he stole the entire riff and song for Ghostbusters from I Need a New Drug from uh, Huey Lewis. Maybe I'd have to listen to him like back to back to see if see see how much water that holds. You listen to it and it's like, yeah, you can see where it came from. It, I guess, eventually, like uh, they settled out of court. Yeah, where like basically, you know, all right, Ray Parker. <laughs> yeah, little known fact: Huey Lewis was originally approached to do the Ghostbuster theme songs when he bent, you know, dropped out of there. <laughs> we got Huey Lewis just in a different form. Also, that music video for that Ghostbusters uh, song from Ray Parker Jr. is really weird. Apparently, it has like all these cameos from all these other people. None of them were paid anything, and one of them almost got John Candy in trouble because I guess they filmed John Candy on a movie set when he was doing something else. And again, there is almost some legal ramifications out of that as well, too, for like I guess some union-based stuff. Interesting. Lots of shenanigans. Lots of shenanigans. So this became popular. It uh, spawned the Ghostbusters cartoon. The Ghostbusters cartoon, you know, had kind of the same characters, same tone. Although, oddly enough, it also created one of the weirdest paradoxes known to man, where Lorenzo Music basically did the voice of Venkman, which is funny because eventually Bill Murray would then do the voice of Garfield, which is what Lorenzo Music was originally known for as the voice of Garfield in the 80s. Weird how that works out. Right. Also, Arsenio Hall voiced Winston's character in that as well. Good old classic Frank Welker, the man of all the seam-nasally voices. He was... uh, 
uh, playing basically Dan Aykroyd's character. It was a, it was a good cartoon. I didn't mind it. It was good. I watched quite a bit of it from you know when I was a kid. It must have came on at you know an hour I was home, and that, that was that was not a Saturday. Was that an afternoon one or is that a Saturday morning? Uh, one? Afternoon. It was an afternoon one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was an afternoon after school. So Ghostbusters got big, so they had to make a sequel, and the sequel they made was Ghostbusters Two. John, tell me your thoughts on Ghostbusters Two. Oh, good God! Do I have to? Um, yes, you do. I just asked bad. you. It's it's bad. And and you know that's something when when I'm saying something's bad because I'm Mister, you know, it's actually really okay if you just watch it and you know this and that and you don't mind that, but no, Ghostbusters Two is not good. Like, there's got to be some kind of behind the scenes shenanigans as far as what happened, like with the writing and shooting or I don't know. It's just it's it's not good. Well, a lot of it was is that a lot of the cast really struggled with making a sequel because they couldn't figure out a way to make it work organically Aykroyd and Ramis were the ones that worked on the script I guess Bill Murray had a lot of problems with the script and how it was being written so there was already kind of some little drama behind the scenes on there and you know again it's hard because really back then like sequels back in the uh, 80s it happened rarely you know it happened in like a lot of your action franchises you never really saw sequels much for comedies, though, except for, like, the Vacation series of movies, as an example. But uh, this movie sequel takes uh, place five years later. And things that are weird about, you know, the whole thing being five years later is that th- this is at least what I do find amusing. The Ghostbusters hit, like, rock bottom because they were sued by the city because of all the property damage they did while saving the city. That's a weird flex right there. Hey, thanks for saving us. By the way, we're going to sue you now. (laughs) It's all your fault. Right. So the Ghostbusters kind of all split up, and they're all kind of doing their own things until, like, Dana comes back. Now, if not for the fact they said this happened five years later, Dana comes back, and she has a kid, and apparently with an ex-husband interesting in five years you know she gets married gets next you know another kid my standing theory if you were to take the time lapse out of there is that that's uh rick moranis's kid yeah good possibility there would make sense and surprising and kind of surprising they didn't actually go that route because it's not like you needed the five-year time lapse in there you know you could have just said it's you know a year later or whatever so here's the other weird thing is that Dana now works in an art museum, restoring artwork and stuff. She was a classical musician. How do you pivot from that to restoring artwork in five years? I mean, I don't know. You're just like, you know, this whole music thing's not really doing it for me, but I still kind of want to do something that's like arty and classy. So I'm going to go do actual art. Well, just like anything, guess what? One of the... The coincidence is, is a there's some artwork for a Vigo the Carpathian that apparently this weird magic guy tries to like come back and I guess the whole theory is to like possess a child from the comeback again really arbitrary does it have to be a child I mean he basically took over the mind of that one annoying guy hey it's me Vigo the Carpathian why not just take over that guy I mean it's just because child children are younger. Or, yeah, because you can't really do anything when you're in a baby's body. Like, you know, oh, I'm gonna crap myself, and you know, 
not be able to feed myself or walk or anything really like yeah you would think like go find somebody who's at least you know a little bit older you know get an eight-year-old at least or something i don't know right well anyhow to uh they have like cross promotional benefits to it hey guess what there's slime that's underneath uh new york city and Really, you didn't need a movie to tell me there was probably slime under New York City, but anyhow, this slime is doing stuff and is vaguely associated with the painting of Vigo the Carpathian, and the Ghostbusters get back together, and it turns out this is emotional slime that feeds off negative emotions or happy emotions, happy emotions. Um, Rick Moranis, as he's working his way through the female cast of Ghostbusters, decides to sleep with uh, Janine. Uh, the receptionist. That's implied, right? I don't remember as much, but I mean, you know, wouldn't surprise me. You know, I have not seen this one even less than regular Ghostbusters for obvious reasons, but you know, hey, you know, he's a player. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bad. I mean, essentially, you know, the kind of help breeze through some of this here is that uh crazy possessed guy tries to steal Dana's baby and he's fixated on Dana as well. Who's promised to him from Vigo, the Carpathian, the ghostbusters really don't do anything in this movie. Cause all they really do is outside of like going into the subway and finding like the slime. There really isn't much ghost busting from their part outside of their court case where apparently some ghosts are like trying to get them there. But I, I don't know. Very, very weak movie. Things this movie was known for is this, is that... Um, sucking. Yes, it was known for sucking. It was known, for me, things that kind of stuck out about this movie. Bobby Brown and the soundtrack. This is when Bobby Brown was probably at the end of his height of his popularity at this point from his debut album. Then all Bobby Brown would be known for after that was really... Uh, Marrying Whitney Houston. Yeah, it did not work out well for Whitney Houston on that end right there. Um, the other thing I thought was a weird thing, too, is like the beginning. Do you remember what uh, Dan Aykroyd and Winston were doing for a career at the beginning of the movie? I don't. Were they like a medium or something, maybe? No, they were children's entertainers where they would go as Ghostbusters at birthday parties and stuff. Because there's a part there at a kid's nice. birthday party, and like, who are you going to call? And all the kids yell out, He Man. Funny thing is that, all right, if this movie is made in 88, by then He Man was already gone. Nobody cared about He Man at that point. He Man died a horrible, slow media death, like once that, uh, his like live action 87 movie came out, which was horrible. We won't talk about that. Oh, God. Was, no, luckily I never saw it, but I know its reputation. You should, because Dolph Lundgren and uh, what's-her-name from Friends, and I don't even want to remember Courtney the movie. Coxner? Yeah, she was in it. Oh, God. Uh-huh. Courtney Cox was in the He-Man movie. That's scary. It is. But uh, really... The movie itself for Ghostbusters 2, this was more or less, this was like when uh, when this came out in 89, this was like the huge blockbuster summer. Because you remember what other movies came out that same year? I don't off the top of my head, but I, I think I've heard this before, that, there, that that was just a crazy, crazy summer. Because uh, during that movie, summer, like you also had movies like Batman 
and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There, there was a lot of bigger, better movies, and this one really kind of fell short just because of the fact that it just couldn't match, I think, the, the, the greatness of the first movie right there. And I would say no, that... It was good, yeah. I would say this. If, what would you... What would be good movies that had horrible sequels in your eyes? Um... I don't know. I almost said Godfather, but that's the third one. That's not the horrible one, right? Isn't it? Yeah. How about this? Worst second sequel. The Godfather second movie. Some people like the second Godfather movie more than the first one. Nah, not me. I really like the. I like the first one better. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's not uncommon. I can't think of any off the top of my head, though. Uh, Matrix. I don't know. Matrix movies. <laughs> Oh yeah, all those. Yeah, those are pretty bad right there. Uh, now I'm just thinking too hard on this. Don't ask questions you don't have answers like readily available for. It makes you look <laughs> stupid. That's okay. How about this, Men in Black Two? Yeah, probably. Yeah, bad, bad movies. So. When this uh, when this movie basically ended and after coming out, really Ghostbusters stayed around for at least a little while longer. I think more than cartoons. They had like two or three different versions of the cartoons. Eventually, the cartoons uh, just spawned off where Slimer was the main character, just because Slimer's mar- you know marketable. Also, I would say the first two Ghostbuster movies also probably helped push probably one of the greatest beverages of all time, John, which was. Ecto cooler, absolutely. Never, really, honestly. Like when you think of high C, if you were born any time before like ninety five, ecto cooler was basically what everybody always would want and drink. If you heard a high C, didn't they briefly bring it back not too long ago? They did bring it back for like a small, small, small limited thing. I don't know. I don't know why they don't like McRibbit and basically make it a seasonal thing, and then everybody goes nuts and wants to drink it like you know once a year. Artificial demand. Is high C even still a thing anymore? Or is it just like at McDonald's that orange blast? No, it's still around. It's still there, but its glory days are like, you know, done. It's it's what it is. So then Ghostbusters would go dormant then for about 20 years. No, even more than 20. Let's see, it was 89, so 99, 19. Uh, was no, yeah, maybe about a little less than 20 years because then they decided let's relaunch the Ghostbusters and they had a movie. And John, you've already stated you've never watched this movie. No, I kind of like it wasn't for the reason that a lot of people didn't go see it. I didn't go see it because I just heard it was not good. It really isn't. I mean part of the problem with this so it's ghostbusters and eventually they gave it like a end tagline way to kind of separate it from other ghostbuster movies which is called answer the call and they redid the movie they decided let's go with a whole female cast and you know what i don't i don't have a problem with that you want to do a whole female cast great where the problems came into place was that um they really didn't have a script for this movie, 
Not at all. So Paul Feig was the one who wrote or directed this, and it was written by Feig and somebody else. And they brought in a lot of SNL alumni. They brought in uh, Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig and Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones, you know. And essentially what they did is they didn't write a script. and like, why don't we just ad-lib and just riff for about 75% of the movie? And that's really what it is. You can tell what points of the movie they had no script. And it's like, hey, uh, uh, Melissa McCarthy, here's what's going to happen. You're going to order from this Chinese place you always order from. You're going to get wonton soup. But the thing you're going to be mad about is they're going to give you one wonton. Could you stretch that out to several minutes worth of material? Okay. And that became a joke. It, it was a reoccurring joke. It wasn't even a good joke once. They made it like a couple of times in the movie. And it is not a funny movie. And it's it has funny people in it, but they are not being funny. And it is not a funny movie. It is one of the weirder things in there. They do have some cameo appearances, you know, from some of the characters from the first Ghostbusters movie. Like Bill Murray's in there and you see a small cameo from like, you know, Ackroyd and all this other stuff, but it feels shoehorned in there. Matter of fact, the weirdest thing about uh Bill Murray's cameo is that uh he's not even playing Vekman, Venkman. He's playing somebody else. And that guy dies. He gets killed in the movie. <laughs> Just a nice. weird, weird thing here. Uh, the <clears throat> funniest parts of the movie are basically Kate McKinnon and, honestly, Chris Hemsworth is probably the funniest part of the movie. Yeah, I do remember hearing that he did a decent enough job with what he was given, You know, which I kind of buy because in the last few Thor movies, he's kind of had more of a, have you know, definitely had kind of a, more comedy bent to him than the previous two. So, so I buy it, you know, I don't uh, know that I see comedy being his future, but you know, he can clearly do it. Well, and this came out like uh, about a couple of years or so before, uh, Ragnarok came out too. So yeah, you know what, maybe this is his up and everything for it, but, um, <sighs> man, not a good movie. It's not a, not a good movie, John. I don't want to, I don't even want to talk about this, John don't i know we can yeah we can we can stop i mean uh, there was obviously that whole sect of the you know the the normal people to get mad and female lead things was a big thing back then which is you know unfortunate that they were right in this case that it was a bad movie it, it's all the people that love to ignorantly yell oh if you go woke you go broke no that didn't have that wasn't the problem with the movie the movie was is they just didn't write a script they just figured if we got like a bunch of funny people They'll write the movie right, make the movie right itself, right? No. Yeah. No. Didn't work out so well. John, I would say watch it once just so you can say that you hate watched it. I don't know. I have a hard enough time watching things I want to watch that are good. Yeah, I know. That is rather true. You're probably more far behind than me on certain things. Yes. All right, we'll, we'll move on to the next Ghostbusters movie after that. So then they did what I would refer to as probably a more uh, proper reboot, I guess, which yeah, is Ghost- soft, soft, soft reboot. Right, Ghostbusters Afterlife. That came out a uh, couple of years back. That one, though, is actually more of a direct sequel, though, in that sense where 
essentially involves you know the you know kid of or grand was a kid or grandkid I think grandkid. I think you eventually you eventually learn. Yeah, I mean, you know that, that that I think you actually know right away. I think actually they kind of allude at it, and basically with this, it's like, hey, here's some people that find out that you know Chala finds out her legacy as being like you know the granddaughter of Egon Spengler and everything, and but like her mother moved to a further away place to try to get away from all the hype and everything of what was happening with that, and essentially. They, they write it off like a, how Egon dies was like fighting a ghost, basically. And, you know, basically the family in, inherits this farm and everybody's like, oh, you're from the weird, like, you know, place down there. Because that's what people do in old towns. It's like when they see new dang fangled Yankees, they assume that. But, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, you know, find proton packs and everything and eventually it really almost becomes exactly like the first Ghostbusters where you got Paul Rudd is in there and Paul Rudd like meets the mother and they both get possessed and they kind of just basically redo the whole Gozer thing all over again. And yeah, which, you know, I like, I generally like this one, but then when they uh, brought all that back, I was like, really? Like you're going to do that already. Right. They, they bring back Gozer and that basically is like, Hey guys, it's just like the first movie, but it's far, far better than I would say Ghostbusters 2. I feel it's more heartfelt, at least, versus Ghostbusters 2 because it deals with, like, finding identity and everything where Ghostbusters 2 just felt like a horrible cash grab. Uh, you know, let's we'll toss in the awkward Finn Wolfhard from, like, you know, Stranger Things. And, hey, there you go. And Yeah, I mean, this one, like, I, I liked it. It's good. It's not great. You know, I think this is a better like you like I think like you said, its heart was in the right place. It kinda nailed the tone right for it. Um you know, and the legacy thing that it had going for it too. I think this was a more proper follow up than yeah, than probably the original Ghostbusters two or the you know, twenty sixteen version, but um worth seeing if you haven't seen it, I think. I think part of this movie is like, we'll throw this out here. We'll see first will people forgive us for the other Ghostbusters movie, and then the other part of it is this: is that let's also uh, let's also see if it opens a door where we can do more with this, which they obviously will, since there's the new Ghost, you know, Busters Frozen Empire coming out. With this, you know, this is one of those movies that they, you know, again been trying to work on for a long period of time. Uh, this time, Ivan Reitman, you know, is back is writing this, you know, versus. Or sorry, uh, produced by Ivan Reitman, you know, and his son Jason was the one who actually wrote and directed it. So, you know, it's kind of again, it's that whole family aspect of it. Hey, we're coming back to take and to you know try to redo what was done in the past itself. And I, I don't know, I I don't think it's a bad entry. When I watched it, I felt it was a good movie. You know, an okay movie for what it should be. Watching it the first time, but it's also not a movie that I would ever sit there and say I got to rewatch that movie. I didn't really resonate with me in that way no i would agree like for me i think it was it was good it was worth watching um that's something i'm probably gonna seek out again if i remember right, my kids liked it a fair amount um you know when this new one comes out whenever it's supposed to come out you know we might go see it as a family just because it you know it'll be fun it's a good light-hearted you know whatever th- movie that you can just kind of go shut your brain off for a little bit and 
enjoy it, you know, as long as they don't screw up the sequel to this like they did the, the original Ghostbusters. Well, and the hard part about this movie, too, is that it also was, like, postponed for, like, over a year because of the pandemic, and that was something that basically had a yeah. huge impact on. It was something that was out there. It came out also, I think, at a time, too, where just movies weren't ready. <laughs> movies hadn't recovered yet from what, it, you know, the pandemic had done, and I don't think movies still has recovered at this point. No, I think, yeah, that's... A whole other thing. I think people are kind of in the phase now where there are certain movies they kind of want to go see out in theaters, but a lot of people nowadays are thinking, eh, I'll just wait for it to come on streaming, especially since the, generally the turnaround from theater to streaming is usually pretty quick. Like, you it's don't like have to two wait months. Very long. Almost in like two months when the movie comes out, but, it'll be out. It? Yeah, I think it depends on the movie. I think the ones that perform don't perform as well tend to go pretty quick. And the ones that do do better tend to wait a little bit longer, but even those don't wait very long at all. I don't know. This this did well enough, though. I mean, at a box office, about $200 million on a $75 million budget. So guess what? You made money off it. Good for you. It's now had uh, spawned another sequel, which is The Frozen Empire. Have you watched the trailer for that? I have. It looks interesting. It doesn't look like it's anything that's going to, like, blow me away or anything but you know it brought back walter peck that is the most important thing you need to know is it brought back the hero of ghostbusters (laughs) one that they did indeed i don't know this this is i think a case talking through all these movies where the first movie is so (laughs) prolific sorry apparently i cannot speak words it was so prolific that even like 40 years later it still has a a warmth and a weight to it that it has. And I, I just, it's, we, I don't think any sequels ever been able to capture that. And that was kind of the fear that a lot of the actors from the original had is like, you know, will, will this hold up? I don't know if it has, but. Yeah. I mean, there's, I, think, I still think even with these new ones that are better, you know, they still haven't touched the first one as far as like getting the right feeling down. They come close, I think, but not quite. Like, and, and we'll see, obviously, with this new one, maybe it'll do a better job with it. But I think they do a pretty good job, but not... But I think you're right. I don't, I don't even know that what movie, even outside of, you know, Ghostbusters, like if any movie has really kind of hit that same tone of, you know, comedy, action, you know, I mean, I hesitate to call it horror, but, you know, scary, you know, something more on the scarier side where, you know, it's 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 a tough balancing act to pull off and i think we're you know we're probably lucky that the first one pulled it off because you know who knows it might not ever happen again let me ask this question has is ghostbusters a horror movie or a comedy movie i think probably more comedy horror you know i mean there are definitely horror comedies out there i think this would follow fall under the the other way around though it's more comedic than it is horror you know definitely not horror maybe just more scary and you know with definite big air quotes on scary um you know your younger younger kids might be scared of it but you know anybody over the age of like 10 maybe even younger than that possibly isn't gonna be scared by much of it i'm looking up one thing real quick here just because it got me thinking about franchises that have been around probably just as long as Ghostbusters that aren't Star Wars, but have been able to maintain or hold to a certain extent 
Uh, Alien. That's what I was just going to say. Aliens is probably the one I would think of the most. Is just Terminator, although not not Terminator is not the quality, but they've been around about as long. Hey, have you ever watched Prometheus? I haven't. Prometheus, yes. I have not seen any of this. You know, like whatever the one Alien Covenant. Um, Prometheus is not good, in my opinion. Again, and you know, as as previously mentioned, you know, that's saying something when coming for me. It just it's. There's just too much stupid nonsense in it, mm-hmm. you know. I like stupid nonsense. Yeah. <sighs> so we've we've discussed Ghostbusters, folks. Just kind of revisiting something in a time when basically what is old is new, and what is new is old because you need to attract the people that remember it to begin with. I think that's the hard part too with a movie like this is that it really relies on the nostalgia of i think the earlier movies to make parents i guess show their kids the movies or yeah which i mean you know works i mean we watched the newer one with our kids and they have they still haven't seen the original one yet yeah which speaking of odd things in the original one isn't there a scene in there where dan Aykroyd gets her gets a job from one of the ghosts yeah weird i wonder who wrote that movie oh wait i wonder who <laughs> has a weird obsession with the old cult in like afterlife Oh, yeah. Yeah. Base Dan. Ghost Blow Jobs is like t- Quentin Tarantino's feet obsession. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. What a weird, weird moment in there. I guess there's like a scene where that went even further than what it did, but they they edited it out. Good move with the editing, guys. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost starting to be, it goes fairly far from what I remember. Yeah, and it apparently goes further than that, so. Yeah. And that's how we're going to end this episode, guys. We're going to end this episode with you thinking about uh, Dan Aykroyd <laughs> getting fellatio from a ghost. Yeah. Enjoy that one while you go to sleep, everybody. Yeah, unravel that one to your psychiatrist at a later time. <laughs> It'll be great. It won't be. Folks, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Spragle. And I'm still the other host, John Lundquist. Thank you, and until next time. Yes, everybody, have a good one. Because Bustin' makes me feel good. <laughs>